Welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective, where we drag all the skeletons out of the wiring closet. Today, we're talking to Dave Farber about the history of, well, the history of the whole internet. So grab a pile of cookies, settle in, and listen as we meld with the finest minds in networking. Well, good morning, Dave. It's morning for you. It's evening for me because you are at Keio University in Tokyo, and I'm here on the East Coast in the U.S., so a long way away. It's funny how the internet actually allows us to talk to each other over such a long, long distance. Without paying for it. Without paying for it. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I, now, we pay for it. But. Yeah, we pay a lot for it. We do, we do. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing right now, and then start back at the very beginning when you got involved in the Internet. Okay, uh, let's see what I can say. I've been um, in academia now for many, many years. Uh, I retired from the University of Pennsylvania um, in telecommunications and computer science, and I spent five years at Carnegie Mellon University as a distinguished professor. And then I... um, uh, I'm still emeritus. I'm emeritus of Penn. I'm adjunct at CMU twice, and uh, basically that plus uh, being in the computer field for many, many years. I started out at Bell Labs back when Bell Laboratories was no place to be. So I, you know, just a long time in the computer field. Uh, when I started, there were no computers to speak of. There were they were there, but they were very rudimentary. So I've been able to follow the whole field uh, of both computers and communications. That's really cool. So Bell Labs, that must have been the mid, uh, mid late 70s, early 80s, maybe, before I that? I got there in 1956. Oh, 19, oh my goodness. <laughs> and I left in 68 to go to Rand Corporation in California. And back then, you know, we had... Uh, uh, model 33 teletypes to type into not very interactive environments. And we had 300 board acoustic modems, 300 bits per second acoustic modems. And there were arguments whether anybody would ever want 1200 board. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, now we argue whether you want, uh, whether anybody will ever want a hundred gigabits, which is improvement at least. Uh, <laughs> I got into networking very early, actually, in a, in a funny way. At Bell Labs, we did a, I was in the computer science research organization, and we did a lot of stuff that uh, got very little publicity. You know, obviously, Unix got a lot, but we had uh, three major laboratories. Two of them were, connect, were connected uh, via high-speed digital um, uh, carriers, telephone carriers that were were converted to be digital uh, pipes. Uh, So we're operating then at about uh, 20 megabits, which was fast as hell. And we used to have remote printers, uh, the whole nine yards. But it wasn't an interactive environment. It was still basically a batch environment, although many of us kludged together an interactive environment on computers that were never designed to do that. Um, I also got involved early on with uh, a uh, at Bell Labs with an effort called Multex, which I consider the uh, the father of Unix. Uh, the um, you know, one can argue this, but I, I won't. Uh, 
the, the rationale of back of Unix is they were sick and tired of waiting for Moltex to actually ever come up. It was just an enormous effort and it took time. <laughs> uh, big surprise. Well, anyway, uh, when I went to RAND, um, I started getting involved with some of the people that were thinking networking. In particular, I got involved with Paul Barron, very closely involved with Paul Barron, who was one of the, I think, the originator of the notion of packet switching. Uh, he did a, a very early paper uh, on, pack, on uh, packet switching as a way of getting reliable communications. Uh, the, uh, now, the, he wasn't looking at a network per se there. He was talking about survivable communications that would, would also be uh, efficient. So the notion of packet switching had both things in it. Uh, after a sh- relatively short, well, about two years later, I went to University of California at Irvine and actually got involved in a networking project, the original OpenNet. Uh, we got down there th- because of some joint activities we were doing with DARPA. Um, we got a IMP, which was the, the way you accessed a very limited OpenNet. And there were maybe four schools, five schools, a bunch of company of companies who were involved in building it. People like UCLA, MIT, we were involved. Berkeley, a bunch, oh, small. Bunch now, those of were running on PDP 11s, or is that after? We were running PDP 10s and 11s. Any of them, obviously, could get working. I was in the process of building a fully distributed, probably the first really distributed operating system, and computer environment. We had a bunch of computers all talking to each other in a fall tolerant way, content address, networking, whole nine yards. So I got involved in communications at that point, realized that Bell Labs, I was deeply involved in communications. Uh, I'll cut a long story short by, uh, because there were a couple, what, about 10 years at Irvine where we, we did some really nice work in distributed systems. Then I went to um, to University of Delaware, back east. Um, every time, every once in a while, when it snows back in, in Delaware, I wonder why I left sunny California. Uh, then I go back and get stuck on the freeway, and I know why I left. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's either the snow rush or it's the rush hour, one or the other. <laughs> totally different structures. When I went back uh, to Delaware, I was talking with an old friend of mine, Larry Lamweber, um, and this was the time of Sputnik, basically. You know, and the U.S. was in a big rush to get their computer science people established because it was clear that computers were a critical part of space and, and defense programs, etc. And so what was happening is Almost every university in the country, college, everything, established a computer science department. Usually one or two people in it. Certainly one person in programming languages, one in this, one in that. It's very hard to do research when you're in that type of environment. And uh, we had had enough experience using the ARPANET to realize that that really changed things. By the way, this was the time when you paid a dollar a minute to talk cross-country on the telephone. Right, yeah. Telephony was very expensive. Yeah, I remember remember when they split the Atlanta area code and everybody fussed about it because people who used to live next door to each other and could talk now had long distance. That's right. And it really really stopped collaboration. 
So uh, we went um, to the NSF, National Science Foundation, uh, twice, actually. Larry went on his own, and then he and I and three others went to them, proposing that they fund the creation of a computer science network based on both the ARPA technology and uh, and telephone technology to just establish communication between computers. Now, the telephone was just as a communication channel, not not something you talked over or anything. So it was all uh, in this in the current style of of networking, but much slower. But we were able to we got money from the NSF, and we were able in a three year period to have about four hundred and some odd. Um, academic institutions joining it, and about uh, 12 or 13 major research establishments joining it. And we had, we arranged for interties between CSNet, which was this X25 based network, internet based uh, telephone uh, uh, communication based uh, vehicle. Uh, it worked because, you know, Blue School could phone in once a day and swap email. It was largely an email environment, although there were other things going on. Um, that actually, we also expanded that outside the U.S. Uh, Larry and I came over about 40 years ago with a tape um, with CSNet software on it to Japan. And uh, they brought it up in Japan and started talking to uh, to us in the United States, uh, we wanted to connect China, but export control laws being what they were at that point, uh, what we did was ship the tape to Germany and connected them up. And then they, we sort of felt that they'd probably connect to Chinese. So <laughs> legally, we did it. Uh, <laughs> I won't go to for it. Uh, that sort of triggered a lot of things. It triggered some very good things. And we established a lot of the principles when we interconnected with ARPANET. Uh, we had an appropriate use policy because this was federal network. And we had the essentially the peering agreements uh, because we had NSF funded project and op- military funded projects. And we had to decide who was going to pay who for traffic and we decided by edict that traffic going in both directions were equal, so nobody owed anybody any money. <laughs> the first settlement free peering. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the appropriate use policy I wrote on the back of an envelope, and it, I wish I hadn't in some use, but it kept us out of legal trouble. So that evolved quite rapidly. Um, now, at the same time, I was when I was at UC Irvine still, uh, and we had the imp down there. A number of my students uh, were doing research work, in that, and I had uh, John Postel was one of my students, graduate students, and Paul Macapetras who did DNS, a whole bunch of people uh, who were doing seminal work. Dave Crocker was doing a there, and at uh, Delaware eventually was doing the uh, email protocol, uh, MMDF. Uh, which probably is still being used someplace. So we watched this this steamroller. At the same time, I was uh, chairing the NSF committee on on networking. And so we were sort of trying to drive 
networking deeper into the research environment. What computer science departments were, were finding out is that it was so handy to people from physics, philosophy, every place in the university was saying, can we use your network? <laughs> the only way we can talk to our colleagues at other schools. And computer science departments are not in the business of running computers, although they did badly. Right, yeah. <clears throat> so um, as chair of the network committee, we, we were pushing the NSF quite hard. And uh, five of us published an article in Science, which we called ScienceNet. Um, uh, that term was taken, so we couldn't use it. It became NSFNet. And basically it expanded the the seminal uh, uh, CSNet into the university as a whole. And as a side issue, in many places switched it over to a comp center responsibility as opposed to a computer science responsibility. And that just blossomed very rapidly. Uh, one of our problems was how to connect uh, schools together in an efficient fashion. So the notion of regional networks and, and points of presence and all the stuff that we we know and even love or hate evolved somewhat as a serendipity. And so we had a, a southern regional network and a, a New York State network and a California network and basically uh, co-ops, usually not-for-profit, that helped expedite communications in the university environment. Uh, rapidly, even in the CSNet days, industry wanted in. Uh, CSNet, we uh, we let research organizations in because we were sort of bound. When it expanded to university-wide, uh, companies came in. And, and basically what evolved was the, the beginning of the commercial internet. Some of the regional networks decided they were doing so well they should – turn from a not-for-profit to a profit-making. And we encouraged that. And we made some mistakes along the way, but, you know. Well, I mean, that, that helps it grow, right? Because that brought it, money into it that you wouldn't have had otherwise, which... Oh, it was the right thing to do. The, the particular way that some things turned out were, you know, we were learning. Okay. okay uh, so basically, um, for a long time, I... I a significant time I was on the uh, advisory board. I'm sorry, the NSF or uh, network advisory board. Uh, about, uh, oof, boy, I'm trying to remember the dates now, 15 years ago, something like that, maybe 20 now. Um, looked at, at the world we were in, and we were sitting with uh, megabit communications, sometimes 150 megabits, sometimes 200, 300 megabits. But it was clear that that there was a technical capability of actually hooking up a network with gigabits flowing, but nobody had done it. And it was non-trivial exercise because you had to develop a whole new set of hardware, had to figure out how to interconnect computers of all types to high-speed communications. Uh, and and Sorry, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> that, by the way, was my... Uh, Alexa heard the word computer and then triggered on it. <laughs> Wants to be, yeah. Uh, so we uh, we wrote a proposal. I won't go into the details of it, but Bob Cotton and I wrote a proposal to the NSF proposing a gigabit testbed. 
and we had, uh, I believe it was three univers three universities consortium, which had uh, someone had one or two universities, and usually one commercial telecommunications laboratory involved. In the East Coast, I think, and my memory is a little hazy right now. We had Penn University of Pennsylvania, where I had moved, and Con and um, I think Carnegie Mellon was in it, and I, MIT I know was in it. And basically, each one of these partnered up with a carrier because we needed their collaboration. Nobody had gigabit links at that point. And uh, by the time the project was over, two years down the road, we were actually connecting up computers with gigabits, and it, it was running. So who were the commercial carriers at that time? There weren't many, right? Verizon, uh, IBM, um, Oh, yeah. that's right. IBM used to be in the carrier business, didn't they? Used to be in the carrier business, and there was uh, another one on the West Coast, and I forget who it is right now. I'll probably get yelled at for forgetting. But <laughs> <laughs> um, the I'll, I'll retro back. You know, any proposal to the NSF has to be reviewed by reviewers, and the standard comment we got back in reviews, we were able to see them, anonymized, was nobody will ever need a gigabit. <laughs> of course. Which brought back to the old days of nobody will ever need uh, you know, anything but 300 bits per second communication. Right. Or however much memory it was Bill Gates said all those years ago. <laughs> the system problem in the computer field that you never need it until you have it, and once you have it, you want the next step. You know, at, at Bell Labs, uh, we had the first IBM scientific computer. And Dick Hamming of Hamming Code fame and others that managed the computing center there. And he went wild. People were buying very small uh, 704 machines. He bought the maximum one, which I think had 32 kilowatts of, of memory. <laughs> Most people were buying four. Uh, and people walked up and said, what do we do? Actually, said, relax. You know, about three or four months after I got in and started working, people were yelling, I only have 32. Now one more. <laughs> it's exactly. not going to be. You, you find it using. Vinserve uh, made a comment back then that the gigabit testbed advanced about three years on the use of gigabit technology. Uh, in networking. Now, you know, we, we deal with 100 gigabits with, without blinking too much eyeball. But that's just the beginning because we can go much faster and then uh, all the the potential research directions that you could go you know, from quantum computer, quantum networks to... And each one raises a set of scientific problems and more and more the problem of the interface between the network and the computer. And you know, one of the problems we have now is when I look back at it, when we, when we and others were building the internet uh, or the original networks, it was hard enough to get the damn thing to run. And the last thing you worried about was security. Yeah, you know, we were friends. Right, yeah. And that's been biting us ever since. You know, we have protocols that have an incredible amount of problems from a security perspective, running on computers that have fundamental problems with security within the hardware, the software we won't even talk about. 
um, you know, it's endless bug fixes that create more bugs. And that that's uh, that's probably the next reach we have. Because what I think is going to happen is as we get to higher and higher speed communication, all the stuff we know now and love, like TCP IP, which was, you know, all that protocol was built largely to interconnect incompatible networks. Now, you had IP packets, and you, that was your interchange. And now we have one world that's all IP, and you, you wonder if you really need that mechanism where it is that error control. So um, you mean IP in general, or do you mean above IP? Um, I think there's a question to be asked in the future as to whether or not IP IP as currently structured, packetized communication is correct at very high speeds. And you can argue that it, there are real limitations and real inefficiencies. Because as you, you know, the, the, the world is, takes time for electrons to move and for bits to move. And a lot of the, the error control protocols and other things really sort of bog down uh, when you get into very, very high speeds, the other problem you have is that I think this personal opinion that our, um, our computers are built with IO uh, to connect up disk drives and tapes, very synchronous stuff. You say, give me something, it gives it to you. The problem with networking is that it's really, you get hit in the head with a stream of data. There's very little warning. And so our whole input-output systems tend to bog down because we can't easily get memory. We get memory congestion, lots of problems. I think it's going to be time over the next 10 years to rethink. Look so you're at, thinking more asynchronous I.O.? I'm thinking more, <laughs> I'll make a sacrilegious comment, that we may want to go back to fast circuit switch. Okay. Okay. Because you know, the difference between a circuit and a package, one could argue is the length of a package. If you make the packet long enough, it looks like a circuit. Right. So exactly. wrap, uh, But I don't know. And, and a lot of modeling work has to be done, a lot of thinking. Uh, I think we, we will need to re-architect our computers to be inherently more secure. And um, a lot of, and we have to learn how to build software that doesn't have endless bugs in. (laughs) The internet now is not just a toy for academics. It's it's controlling everything, including things like the East Coast power grid, right? Um, And and that's a problem. Anyway, after that, I just finishing the story for a moment. I actually went to the FCC for a year. As an IPA, uh, I won't bore you with what that is, <laughs> chief technologist. And the timing was just right because the FCC and the government had just discovered the network. And so, you know, as chief technologist, I have to go up to the Hill and explain to senators, usually senators, uh, what the hell was the Internet and their staff. And, you know, they're bright. Most of them were very bright, but it's just not their bag. They're lawyers. They've been brought up in a different world. And so that was a large part, but we got involved in a lot of things there. And Which, then, by the way, 
which by the way is entertaining because when I was at Verisign Labs, um, I was tasked to go to a bunch of senator offices and talk about how the internet really works because they still don't know. <laughs> it's just like you said, it's not their thing. They're just not. Imagine, uh, you know, up until I had a joint appointment pen with Wharton. And when I first got that, one basically didn't, uh, not didn't teach the internet. It just never rose. It was outside of their model. And now them and law schools and others are getting more deeply involved because they have to. We're doing, at KO, it's the same thing. You, you have uh, very good people in public policy, et cetera, uh, law, but how does the internet fit in that? How does it fit in internationally is an interesting problem. Uh, because right now we're in a world where laws are different in every country. Some countries you can't actually prosecute cyber criminals. The law just doesn't allow it. Uh, the homogenization, I guess you call it, of laws uh, in the right way is, I think, going to have to happen. Um, just a huge amount of issues. And all, they all come from this sort of out-of-control research project. This group. <laughs> No, people. So, so can we blame it on you, the out of control research project? <laughs> blame it on the whole internet crowd. Um, <laughs> no, um, in in Japan and in many places, uh, they call me the grandfather of the internet because my academic children were among the fathers of the internet in both countries. Um, the and it. Nobody knew this was going to happen. And if somebody claims they knew it all, ask them why they're not richer than Bill Gates. <laughs> it just it crept up on us. And by the time we realized what we had done, and it was the right thing to do, uh, many of the things that we just brushed aside as, you know, eh, yeah, we'll get around to it someday, like security just didn't happen. And that's been haunting us, and it's going to continue to haunt us. That's one of the things we're looking at as kale. Um, what are the impacts of, of advancing technology on the way society operates, um, laws, uh, as well as technology? It's an, it's an interesting time because we're just beginning to understand what it does internationally and what it does domestically, false news, the whole nine yards, are not something that anybody predicted. Although, by the way, false news is an old idea. Uh, I'm sure you've had talk radio down in your neck of the woods. <laughs> well, I'm sure it goes back before that. It goes, yeah. But I, I think I can remember some newspaper advertisements replicated from the 17 and 1800s that I would consider false news today. <laughs> Well, the U.S. has a has a custom of having nasty political dis, uh, campaigns. <laughs> the term uh, false news is not is sort of a well. That's what we do. Doing we promise we lie, um, and then hope that the electorate forgets it. But I think I think the other thing that's going to happen, and probably one of the more important things, is going to happen. I, I tend to comment to people, if you think the last 25 years was, wow, wait until the next five. Because we have a whole bunch of things happening. There's the Internet of Things, 
which could turn out to be really handy or could turn out to be the catastrophe of the century. Uh, again, it depends on, on there are a lot of problems with it. Uh, and most of them hang around security issues. Uh, and just the in, intrusion of the internet into your life uh, for better and for worse and how society reacts to that is going to be interesting. Uh, more or less the, you know, people playing around with implants, just everything. Uh, I, I, uh, I think it's a great idea. And I worry about it at the same time. Right. Yeah. yeah. What is gained and what is lost, as my major professor says, or my PhD advisor says, what is gained and what is lost? We often ask what is gained and we almost never ask what is lost. That's right. The other thing that we don't do and I've been paying more attention to, you know, when you look at things like what, what is wrongly called AI, because it ain't what I remember AI being useful. <laughs> But at least deep learning. Uh, there are a whole set of really ethical issues there that we just do not teach students about. You know, uh, you know, it's, it, we're, we could be in the same place that atomic scientists found themselves in after, after Hiroshima. You know, what have we done? Uh, I think we're getting very close to that in the in the. I'll call it AI. I, <laughs> so it's only more machine learning today, isn't it, than it is? It is all machine learning. We still don't know how to do AI. Yeah, right. We exactly. Back, back at Bell Labs, uh, Anna Rand, uh, uh, Herb Simon, Noel Shaw, Ed Newell, and, uh, and Pearl issues to come out about once a month. And they were trying to really do AI. And we haven't progressed a huge amount down that path. Now the the uh, the doctors of medicine look at us and say, "Can you tell us how the brain operates?" And we look at them and say, "Can you tell us how the brain operates so we can make computers operate that way?" <laughs> we we still don't have a real good appreciation of what's going. Well, on. I think I think one of the big dangers with AI. By the way, this is kind of where my one of one of the points in my dissertation work right now is that. We kind of redefine intelligence in a very instrumental fashion. You almost see that in Turing. And it's not really as instrumental as we would like to make it be. And so we tend to run off another paths. And like you said, we call machine learning AI, and it's really not. It's much more instrumental than intelligence is. That's right. And it, it has shown its teeth periodically you know, with planes doing what they should be doing. Right. It you know, depends on... A, the data you give them, the training you give them, and what you do. Uh, I think we, as we apply it to more and more fields, and in some sense, the net is the enabler of that. It's the thing that lets us put surveillance cameras all over the place, you know, everything in the kitchen sink, um, and then use learning systems to decide what to do with that information. But, uh, you know, and you're seeing that, well, you're seeing the results of that in places like Google and, and Facebook, where some of the more ethical employees begin to wonder what they got themselves into. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. That was more from the physicists who, you know, real, maybe after the fact, forgot why they went in in the first place. At least right. they went for, one could argue, a better cause than, than stock options. 
<laughs> yeah. So tell us. So this is kind of what you're working on in the cyber civilization research, right? Yeah. That you're that you're running. Yeah. What we're trying to do is, and it's just started. It's a long. Now, any university, it's getting people to work together is like herding cats, you know, hard. But um, what we're trying to do is get a, an environment where both technologists can come in and talk about where they're going, and legal people, business people, uh, ethicists can come in and talk about the implications of that, and, and vice versa. I mean, quite often, it's uh, we have a problem that may be amenable to a technical solution. Okay, if you do that technical solution, what impact will it have on society, on your society? And you would like not to create catastrophes. Um, right. And in um, you know, many countries, Japan has an aging population. Uh, how do you deal with, how do you take care of those people? And how in taking care of them you not change the culture in bad ways. So it's a whole set of open issues, and we have work going on in, quote, AI, uh, technology, security. You know, and it's essentially the center is an umbrella into which people can come and talk to each other and hopefully, uh, hopefully learn how each other thinks, which is, I think, the main thing you're after. And universities, for some strange reason, tend to be very bad at doing that. So we're trying to correct some of those problems. That's cool. Very interesting. So any funny stories or anything you can remember from the early days that, uh, I mean, you know, we were told about breaking into the lab at MIT. We'll never forget that one. <laughs> um, oh, there are a number of interesting stories, but I probably shouldn't tell them. <laughs> okay. Well, then that's fine. <laughs> well... And- Remember, I'll just read one. Remember what I said about um, their federal networks? Well, allegedly, there were people doing silver trading over those networks. Oh, I see. (laughs) Right? Experiments are always valid. Now, there are a lot of stories. uh, Most of them have to do with how decisions were made in relatively serendipity ways. Some, Some correctly, some incorrectly. But again, we, we didn't have a we didn't have a big overview on where we we're going because nobody knew where we were going. And it was tripping into step after step after step, and yeah, some people had a general direction, but quite often it was driven by industry suddenly popping up with an idea and needing a capability. And the other thing that I think an interesting and this is debatable. Yeah? There's always been a question of what caused the explosive growth in the net. And you can get some people saying it was the browser, the web. Uh, I would point out that there have been browsers a long time before the the web-based one. It maybe weren't as sophisticated, but they they existed. I think the thing that caused the big explosion in practice was the thing that caused the big explosion in computing computing and business, that along came this little toy called the PC. And now rather than have to buy and find a PDP or 10 to run network stuff on, you could, some kids up in Boston produced a, uh, a internet package that operated within DOS, 
the the old operating system on yep. a PC. And now some stab with a, a analog modem uh, could now connect up with the internet. And so you went from being a set of people who needed big computing to anybody who uh, could afford um, connecting to some service provider, AOL, et cetera, could now be on the internet. And that, I think, was a profound difference. Uh, and, you know, I've always asked myself, if you took away a service at a time, when would the internet be useless? Well, it's hard to talk about taking away the web because <laughs> yeah, it's difficult to figure out what that would look like. Yeah, Actually, but if you take pieces out, you know, I've always felt that if you took away email, everybody would stop using it. That's pretty much my feeling too. Yeah. That's that's what I largely use. Yeah, that's that's the critical thing because it lets people interconnect with people. Yeah, I will tell you one funny story. Um, I used to deal with a a, a, a woman up in. Uh, maybe then, I would name back when they were deeply in there. And I had this vision of of this elderly grand, grandmother. You know, <laughs> just, all we had is text messages. Right? And that went on for a long time until finally I met her. And she was about a 23 year old, far from grown. You paint the people. <laughs> No, the video takes away a lot of that. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but back when all you had was email or text communication, you had images of people. And those images uh, quite often were not realistic, and sometimes they were nicely not realistic. I think <laughs> that coming on in video, because now we can create realistic avatars. So if I want to have a new face, I can fairly yeah. easily do it. Well, now we have deep fakes, right? What they call deep fakes, which is AI augmented facial changes and stuff right. like that. Putting one person's head on another person's body kind of a thing. That's right. And if you want, um, well, well, we're seeing that already. The fake news video, create any video you want. Right? Yeah. You can move. Yeah. You can have Obama and, uh, and Trump hugging, which is about as far as fake you can get now. <laughs> yeah. Wow. All right. Well, that's great. Well, thanks for coming on tonight um, and or this morning for you. Morning for me. I'm, morning for you, night for me. It's, that's strange how the internet doesn't make it possible for everybody to be at the same time. So. That is a big, big problem. Uh, <laughs> I'm not as far as you can get, but um, I guess China's a little further. But the outer sync world is entertaining. <laughs> it is. It is. Great. So can, student again. so can people find the cyber civilization research online someplace? Yes, yes. If they look at CCRC, hold on. Can I mail that to you? Yeah, you can email it to me. That would be great. And you can I'll put, put it, it I'll put it in the show notes. Okay, good, good. I'll do that. Okie doke. Good. All right. Excellent. And uh, for all the listeners, thanks for coming and listening to us talk about the history of the internet on the Network Collective, and we'll see you next time. 